Founders, welcome back to the Zero to 5,000 podcast, where we obsess over the convergence of human potential and business results. Today, our hosts, Drew McClure and Jordan Mitchell, have another insightful conversation for you. So let's jump right in. All right, founders, welcome back to the podcast. Today, we are joined by Paul Bianco. Paul caught the entrepreneur bug at the age of 19, igniting a lifelong journey of business creation and growth. Drawing from his invaluable experiences in consulting and venture capital, he laid a strong foundation for his brainchild, Graphite. Over nearly seven years, Paul has dedicated himself to, prov- to providing entrepreneurs with accessible fractional finance and accounting services, empowering early and growth stage companies to achieve financial prowess without the operational cost of building an in-house financing team. And today, to tell us all about his journey and lessons along the way is Paul. So, Paul, thanks for being here, buddy. Thank you. Well, tell me, we gave a, we gave a little bit of background on, on Graphite and how this got started, but in your own kind of words and experience, where'd this idea come from? Well, it really was kind of an accidental uh, company. Um, you know, I didn't know I'd be going into this. I, I actually, interestingly, I always wanted to be an entrepreneur. Like you mentioned just before, when I was 19, I started my first kind of thing in college as like this affiliate marketing website and getting went down that road. But I... I kind of grew up um, more conservative than that. And my parents are like, hey, you got to like finish school. You got to just get a regular job. I heard accountants do well. Maybe go to school for accounting. <laughs> like, I don't really know much about that. I took a high school accounting class, right? And it, I got like 100 on every test. It came pretty easily. And I'm like, all right, it kind of seems easy enough. I kind of get it. It's clicking, majored in that. Still had that uh, kind of entrepreneurial itch, though, throughout all, all college but started as got a regular job um, at a consulting firm, but got my CPA while I was there. I was doing more kind of like accounting like work, even though it was a CP, even though it was a consulting firm. Anyway, started a couple small things, always had these side projects, um, made my way into venture capital. I got a job at a venture capital fund, seed stage fund in New York city. And um, this is a few years later, Anyway, I go in, I start noticing right away, we're investing money in these companies, sometimes millions of dollars, and their books were like really in bad shape. Hmm. Like we're investing a lot of money and no one knows what's going on after we invest. So as part of the fund, we're like, hey, maybe we could jump in and actually help these companies ourselves have clean, nice numbers where they understand what's happening and understand the story and um, could make better decisions. So we were doing that like literally as part of the fund as a value-add service. After doing that for a few years, kind of like, well, maybe there's something there. Maybe, so I kind of took my CPA. So it's funny, I went from, from accounting-like work and got my CPA into something where I didn't really think I'd be doing accounting work, but back into accounting work. And we're like, hey, maybe let's turn this into a separate company. We're going to keep supporting our portfolio companies like we always have, but also work with the broader a small business and startup ecosystem. Um, and that was uh, late 2016, early 2017. So we did that for, for a few years. Then we took that small team of people, about a handful of people, into a separate company. We're now on our own. We're an independent company, and we're going to try to grow this thing. Um, it's almost 100 employees now. It's kind of insane wow. to even say that. Um, and uh, it kind of took off. And, uh, and that... Uh, that presented just as many challenges as it not taking off, to be honest. The, the challenges changed over a period of time. That's yeah. kind of how we started, just as a, as a we saw a need within our own portfolio, and then we went from there. So it sounds like you were an entrepreneur before an entrepreneur, where yeah. you kind of created some some idea and got traction inside the company before launching out. Yeah, so, so you know, I, I'm... I'm a risk averse person. I think any of my the members on my team that end up listening to this would want me to say that I am slow and steady. We'll get there eventually. We're I mean, granted, we grew quickly, right? So it's not that slow and steady, but compared to maybe venture capital based backed companies like SaaS companies that are trying to quadruple every year, that's not us. But nice and slow and steady. Uh, so yeah, that's kind of so that's kind of how it happened. So it was able to kind of start start a company without taking massive uh, personal risk from absolute scratch. Well, I want to back up before we get into that, because I'm, I'm curious about the, the details there. But you mentioned as, as you were working for this VC company that sometimes companies like yours are pouring millions of dollars into a business, 
without even really understanding, you know, the finances and mm-hmm. things may be a mess. Is that yeah. common in that world? Yeah. Yeah, extremely. So the difference with venture backed companies and startup ecosystem generally is finances go from you, you're starting with nothing. It's just you or you and a co-founder or a few co-founders to raising money, millions of dollars from outside investors. If you go that route and hiring a lot of people, a lot of stuff happening. Now you have customers that all happens in like a year or two, like really quickly. So the thing, so things change really fast. So it goes from really, you could basically just look at your bank statements and credit card statements as a business, like you would as a person be like, I kind of understand what's happening. I, I get it. We, whatever, we hired one extra person. So we were spending this much more a month to quite complicated really quickly. Hmm. So we were a seed stage investor. So we were hitting the companies. We we're investing right at that stage between, you know, it's something kind of getting off the ground to like, whoa, this is it's taking off. We're hiring a lot of people. It's getting complicated. And it's really easy to go from having a handle on things to having no idea. It, it really could happen in a matter of months, not even years. So we're at that critical point where it was okay, we'll invest in your company before you have significant financial acumen, but we'll want to help you afterwards or, or hire a firm to help you or, or whatever. But it is common to go from nothing to something quickly. And it's very tricky to almost keep up understanding yeah. the business as things change. So if someone's listening now and they're kind of in that stage, what were the most important things or what are the most important things that you should get a handle on and you should have an understanding of that's going on in your business? You know, pre-revenue, it changes a lot, right? So at least pre, you, you raise money. Maybe you don't have any customers yet, but you raise some money from vent, from a venture fund. You at least need to have a good handle on what your runway is going to be. And that's just how many, how much more time you have left until your cash hits zero. You just raise some money and how many months is it? There going to be no more cash. Therefore, maybe six months before that, you have to go to market and try to start raising another round of financing. You at least need to know that, the basics. Right. Once you start generating real revenue and things are happening, then you want to get a little bit more nuanced and understanding basically the ROI on, on your sales efforts and where you're putting your engineers to work on new products and what the incremental ROI is there and what we call unit economics. And But really, you know, so so really it's, it's we just kind of go deeper as the companies get more comp, more complex. But that's that's where I want to start. Just start simple. Let's just understand what's happening here at a high level in a nice, easy to understand, digestible way and, and go from there. All right. So I'm curious to get your take on this. Many times founders are asking, should I raise outside capital or should I try to find a way to kind of bootstrap it myself? What is your thoughts on that? So I think it depends on the industry and your risk tolerance and and the person. Um, but I think first just, you know, I've been in venture, we work with hundreds of venture backed companies and I've finally come to the conclusion that I think venture capital is basically for two things from an entrepreneur standpoint. One, and it's not easy to raise by the way. So it is like starting one, you have to be able to do it, but once you do it, so it allows you to start a company without taking serious financial risk yourself. You're bringing an outside party. Um, and it helps you get something off the ground without potentially crushing yourself financially, hiring people just with the money you have in the bank. Not many people could do that. Um, and you could pay yourself a salary, not a giant one at the beginning, but so you could basically start a company, not use your own money, still own most of it and pay yourself at least a livable wage. You're not going to make as much as you would sure. at a job, right? And that, and you, you shouldn't because most of your upside should be from the equity. So it's one for that. I think then you really should just focus on trying to find product market fit. Um, or is, are people going to buy what you're selling? Um, and not just here and there, like you could find someone to buy basically any random thing, but like, do you feel you've got something here where you're really solving a significant problem for the customer? Can you really build this up? You've, you validated it as the founder. You're, I think it's important for the founder to start selling themselves for a while. Then it's like, you know what? We've got a thing that we can sell. I know how to sell it. This is the pitch. This is how we go to market. Now let me build a sales team. Now let me invest a little bit more in engineering. That's the second use for venture capital is once you've established, you've eliminated that initial 
financial risk to get a thing off the ground, make some initial validations, test the hypothesis. So is this idea something that is actually going to end up working? If yes, let me raise more yeah. and grow pretty fast. That's basically it. I think over time it became a little bit of an excuse, not just to do that, but like just to kind of blow it up a little bit, spend money, not really worry about it. There's always going to be more money. And I speak to a lot of founders that at the end of the day, they do that, but maybe they didn't really have product market fit. Maybe things, their customer acquisition costs versus their lifetime value, their unit economics were a little underwater and the company's not worth a whole lot. Well, now you got a lot of investors that have to get paid back before you get paid. And you may walk away with nothing after years and years of hard work, a small salary. So I think even as a founder, it's really, so what we do is important to investors too, um, because they want to see financials, right? But for the founder too, just understanding um, what, how, how quickly should I grow this thing? Do I really have a gut feeling here? Trust your gut as a founder that this could really, really take off. I see it in the numbers. I know it in my heart. It's going to work. Let me raise more money now. Anything other than those two things, mm. I've never really seen work out well. So that's the venture capital uh, story. And the bootstrapping is a whole different animal. Yeah, which is what you decided to do with Graphite, right? So what led yeah. to that decision for you? So we spun out of the venture fund. Um, but for, for me, it was really... But but we didn't take like venture capital itself. So we didn't have an injection of millions of dollars or anything like that. And the reason is, is we're a service company at the end of the day. Um, I believe venture should mainly be, and there's for mainly for technology companies that can scale really, really, really fast and quickly. That's kind of the whole point of it. Um, we're services. We're tech enabled services, but we're services. I just didn't feel for our what we did, it really made sense because it's just, we're hiring people. We're trying to hire and retain good talent to do a thing. And that's inherently limited in how fast you can grow that type of business. I felt yeah. very strongly about that. So I didn't want to get caught up in this hyper growth thing where I didn't believe we could actually make that happen without basically making a ter creating a terrible client experience. So that was, that was, you know, but that came with headaches too. Um, you're worried about, Every every thousand dollars counts. It's forget about having millions of dollars in the bank. You're worried about payroll, you know, next week, and um, so that was really some of my biggest concerns early on. Is worried about every last cut. You you lose one customer, it is a big deal. Oh um, yeah, got employees now. They've got families. They've got mortgages. So you really worry about that way more. If you've got millions and millions in the bank, it's a little bit easier. Um, that. That you know that that thought is years down the road when the runway goes down. But for a bootstrap company, it's quite a bit. Uh, it's really an every week, you know, every every month type of thing until you start getting established and things are getting healthy. Yeah, yeah, it's truly a blessing and a burden, right? Like the burden is you're that intimately connected to every dollar. The blessing though is you're that intimately connected to every dollar, where you're you're actually thinking and and learning from each experience instead of like you're so dis maybe detached from that because you got all that money in the bank that you're missing the lessons as they're happening. Why you lost that customer, what you need to do to improve your product or service. I could see that being a, a trap if you're just infused with cash and you feeling kind of fat and happy and lazy, right? That's, that's, a, that's very well said. I, I think there, there is a detachment when you bring, you get in a big infusion of cash and it's, it's not your money. All right. So the, the, the psychological difference we see between, venture-backed founders and bootstrap founders is, a, you know, a $1,000 expense for a bootstrapped founder, that's like literally your money. Yes. It's no one else's money. It is your money. You could pull it out and take it and pay yourself that amount. So a thousand bucks, that's, that's a Corvette payment, you know, that's like, or whatever, right? Yeah. It's a, that, that's, a, that's money. That's like real money. Whereas a thousand dollars in venture, well, it's not yours. So it's a little bit of a different mindset. And also the um, the outcome, what, the way to make money in venture is to sell the business, right? The minute you're taking outside venture capital, let's say you do try to shoot towards profitability and you have a great year, you do a million in profit, 2 million in profit. That doesn't mean 
you could pay yourself a million dollars that year, right? So it's it's just a, a, another function of how much the company will end up being worth upon an exit. That's when you really make your money. Whereas bootstrapped, it's, wow, I we really profited a lot of money. I could just, that's mine. I could pull it out yeah. or invest in the business. Um, so it is a, it's different incentives and different mindset. But being bootstrapped does force you to be very, very crafty and conservative about every little detail. Whereas venture, it is more about moving quickly. It's like, all right, could we optimize to save a few bucks here or there? Maybe, but like, we've got to get this off our plates. This is good to go. We've got to start talking to customers. We've got to go grow quick. That's the expectation. Yeah. Um, I think a blend of both. If you raise venture, again, the way, you know, I'd advise any founder that wants to go the venture route is have a have that bootstrap mentality a little bit when you're raising that when you're raising venture, get that first round of capital, get to product market fit as lean as you can. Um, don't overdo it, right? You excruciate, be, you know, just going nuts over every $50 expense here or there and driving yourself crazy and spending time renegotiating this and that when you've got to just be talking to customers and building product that suits them. That should be the main focus. But having that discipline is, you could end up with such a, an incredible personal financial um, result. Yeah. Even if the company doesn't get enormous because you were, uh, because you kept conservative. And I've seen, interesting, when we first started uh, Graphite, one of our early clients, venture-backed, didn't raise a lot of money, had decent product market fit, um, raised like under a million bucks. So they only had a million dollars of preference in front of them that had to get paid out before them company was pretty small, but like, you know what? We don't think this company is going to get huge. So we've created a product that we think that we know customers want, but we're not going public and probably we're not getting bought from some strategic for a hundred million, but we've got a business. We raised a little bit of money. Let's sell it now. And we'll walk away with a couple million bucks each. And it's a good win for a couple of years worth of work. And that works really well. If those same founders said, Hey, Mm, we're growing. It's a little slow. I don't know if we could get to be huge, but eh, let's raise a five or ten million dollar Series A. They would have made exactly zero dollars on wow. that exit if they did the same thing, assuming things stayed at the same trajectory. And they ended up exiting for a little more, but not much more than they would have anyway. So it's real. A lot of it is your own gut feeling. Mm. Um, tricky when you have outside stakeholders too that want the exit to be larger. Yeah. I mean, man, that makes, that makes a lot of sense. Like again, in all the interviews I've done, having my own business, the businesses we support as a, as a company, it started to make sense to me. Like in my early days, we didn't talk much about this, but I started a business with one of my uh, business partners where we do coaching for executives, fast growing companies, mm -hmm. that type of stuff, personal services, right? Business mm -hmm. services. And my first few employees after like year one were just on my ass about raising capital. Like, man, we could grow so much faster. We could hire more salespeople. And I was like, we're just not that kind of company. Like, it just kept coming back. It made no sense to me from just a logic, like, where would the money go? What would it do? Why am I now sharing that with somebody else? You know, but what made sense was if we were a technology company, a software company, you know, something like that. And so I see the same thing. I'm really glad we didn't. Like, it, it, the business itself just didn't make any sense to do that. Um, what I'm curious about for you, if we change subjects a little bit is earlier, you mentioned you're a risk averse entrepreneur, right? And you had a good job and then you had a successful, uh, company within a company, right? A service that you, you mm -hmm. kind of spearheaded inside that company. What tipped you over the edge to say, I want to actually, I want to take this outside and I want to, you know, put some personal risk into this and start my own company. I just saw, you know, I already validated product market fit. Mm. That's the biggest thing. I wasn't going out there and saying like, hey, I'm going to spend years. And then hopefully at the end of that, someone will buy what I'm selling. I kind of was like, I've got a team. We're good at what we do. I think we could just like do this. We already know people. And unless it's just our portfolio companies of all the companies, thousands and thousands of companies in venture that are being created every year, these are the handful that happen to have a need that we service. 
it's either that's the case or this pretty much applies to every startup out there. Yeah. And pretty obvious. It doesn't take a genius to understand like there, there must have been, it, it, it wasn't coincidence and more companies must have needed this. So I, going into it, I'm like, probably companies are going to want to buy the service that we are selling. I heard everything in the book. Everyone in the world told me, don't do it. Mm. Um, accounting's been around forever. What's different now? Um, this is already solved. There's already companies that do this. Wh like, why you? Like, literally, people I know, like, eh, this doesn't seem like a you type of business. <laughs> honestly, that that really kept me going. Um, <laughs> like, uh, and, uh, that, that I, I, I should go back and thank those people. Fired um, you up a little bit. <laughs> and, um, and, and, and really, like, so heard everything in the book, and I'm like, eh, my gut's telling me there is something there, though, and let's just see. And um, it was a struggle. Like, the first year, no one's ever heard of us. There were competitors out there doing stuff that had brand recognition and marketing, and we were this brand-new company. Um, doing what primarily? Like, we haven't so we even do, got a chance to uh, Yeah, we haven't even that. talked to – yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, so – so the reason I could speak to the finance and accounting related matters for uh, startups so much is that we do the, we are an outsourced finance and accounting function for startups. So literally we act as an internal finance department when you don't have one yet. Um, everything from bookkeeping to paying the bills, accounts payable to the more strategic financial modeling and CFO type of work. And we do that for companies that are, just way too early to do those things to hire all those functions internally. It just, it's so expensive. It just doesn't make any sense. So we do all of that stuff that an in-house team would do just fractionally. Yeah. Cool. So then how did you go from that first year being a struggle? We're not known, you know, we don't have brand recognition to fast forward a few years later, you have a hundred employees in a very successful business. Yeah. I mean, once we got through the first, you know, I, I it took, it took like four or five months to even get one customer. And um, I, I wish I still have that check. I taped it to, next to my desk. You know, yes. Let's say our restaurant puts their first uh, dollar bill up or whatever. But um, it was like $800 uh, per month, right? So, but it was, that's like, we definitely lost money on that account every single month. We definitely, <laughs> it was not, uh, but we, it was an account, right? And then next thing we know, we hit one just, then the next month, like one more, the next month, two more, then like four more, then like five more. It just started, I think once we started getting um, a little bit of a reputation for doing good work, reasonable prices, people trust, we're really in the trust business at the end of the day. People, we needed the, the industry to trust what we do because it's such an integral part of every company. If the financials are wrong, you don't know what's happening in the business. So once some, a little bit of brand recognition, a little bit of trust started building up, I think it was just a snowball effect. And next thing I know, I find myself running around like a chicken with my head cut off, busy as I've ever been um, in my entire life. And, uh, and, and that was just, an, an, you know, it's a good problem to have um, in ways from a business standpoint, but it, it's also like significant uh, stress uh, as a founder. Um, yeah. I'd rather that than the company failing. Uh, but still, it was it, it's tough to get through those extreme demand moments, too, when you don't have a team built out really yet. Yeah. How many people were on that initial team? Like seven, I think. Okay. Um, like a small handful and hired one or two, you know, here maybe lost one, hired one. We kept pretty steady at first. And then the demand was just just through the roof. Um, and we were just uh, we were just trying to keep up. Um, and it's tricky, you know, we're, we're hiring, um, talented people, but we're serving a very specific type of customer in a very specific type of way. Um, startups have a very specific way. They have to look at their numbers, SaaS companies in particular, and our consumer brands have a much different, which we also do quite a bit of consumer companies, um, and just training everyone up to be doing the same things in the same way and having cons consistent quality and deliverables in the way we do things took a lot of maturing uh, to, to get there. Yeah. How did you actually develop, like what did the sales channel actually look like for you in that early stage, first 20, 30 companies? Like how'd you actually get in front of them and earn their business? 
I started out speaking to some VCs in my network, luckily. And that was like my, my, my cheat code to the whole thing. I think because I was in that industry already, I was able to go to some people I knew and be like, Hey, we're starting this thing. Uh, if you have any companies, if they're new investments or old ones that happen to have a need and don't have a solution in place yet, we're happy to try to help, you know, and if it works and you trust us and they like us and you like us, if you want to give us more business, please do. Otherwise don't and whatever. And so that's what worked. We're just trying to embed ourselves a little bit in, um, in the venture funds themselves um, cause they're often the ones making those introductions. So mm. doing that at the beginning, cause they're on, the, they tend to take board seats. And then, you know, often what happens is companies, they raise money. There's a board meeting during the board meeting. It's like, Hey, we, we need like more clarity and a little bit more insights in what's happening here. So you should probably speak to some kind of, some kind of firm like graphite. Uh, if you want, I can make an introduction or here's a few other companies similar. So it started there. And then it really just became a, a kind of snowball effect um, referral network for us. And um, we didn't have a sales team. I think I closed the first probably 75 clients, just me, yeah, uh, or even 100 or so in that vicinity. Um, it was just email introductions coming all the time. Uh, and I knew it was time to bring in sale, uh, someone to help lead sales. When I was getting emails like, hey, uh, reach out to you a couple times. You still are you open for business still? You do you want to work with us? And I'm like, <laughs> that is like companies are saying, please take my money and help me with this service. And I'm like literally ignoring them because I'm getting a thousand emails a day. And that's wow. when I had the aha moment. I can't, I'm going to literally explode unless I build um, a management team to support uh, this thing. And that's yeah. when we started kind of going in that direction. Was that difficult for you or easy and a no brainer to, to kind of get out of the way at that point? For sales, I think it was it was very welcome for me. I realized, I think that was one where I'm like, obviously, it's outgrowing me. Like the company is becoming bigger than me on the sale. I can't possibly, you know, have five, sale, five six sales calls a day and try to work up proposals and estimates and all this stuff. There's just no way I could do that. So it was welcome for me. Um, Though it did, you know, it's, I, I knew it'd take a little bit of time. Luckily, we got really lucky on, the, on, the, on our first sales hire who ended up just almost right away, just understanding the pitch, um, understanding the nuance. It was a past founder um, himself. And, uh, and that really helped is alleviating. My calendar was back, like 16 back to back, you know, half hour calls a day. Uh, I was frazzled. I remember people like you, like you look like, um, like crazed right now walking around the office. <laughs> like, I'm just like, my eyes are like, you know, from like having 20 cups of coffee and trying to remember all these things. And, um, so that really helped, um, my calendar from that standpoint. And then from an operational standpoint, starting to build a management team and, uh, grew, it, it basically, we call them pods, but basically pods that deliver client work, mm. having some leadership structure there. That really helps. So I am not personally involved in every single account that we service, which is I was at the beginning, which is impossible. Yeah. Well, that's what I was going to ask. If you were both having to sell and service the accounts, you were having to do both. Yeah. Yeah. So it was wow. uh, a lot of uh, we were we were started at New York City, so a lot of running around in New York City on the subway, uh, checking emails every time I got service. Uh, answering them on the subway, trying to balance because I'm standing, going to the client, doing something, immediately trying to knock out emails and stuff and figure proposals out, walking back to the subway. It was just absolute nonstop, uh, which was an issue. I, I think I, I probably went two and a half years without bar I barely taking a day off. Um, mm. You know, and uh, a lot of founders get themselves in that situation. And uh, it's funny, I see it now. We were start working with a new client and they're easy to get in touch with at the beginning and things are, and then about six months later, they're a ghost. And I'm like, it's all right, guys. I, I know it's happening here. And it's just, they're, everyone's well-intentioned. It's just, um, you just get so busy when things start taking off and you start hitting traction. And then most times you, you don't really, you don't see it until it's all, until it's too late and it's already happened. And then you have to kind of course correct and be like, whoa, I, I need some support here. Yeah. Yeah. You know, one of the, the biggest things you mentioned that I see as well, often when I'm getting brought into a company is burnout is starting to be an issue, whether it's at the very top 
or the team supporting the top. And it's that I'm integral to everything. And I feel like I'm always on, I'm never off. Like everything feels urgent all the time. Yeah. What, what's your advice, you know, to you at that time, if you could have gone back or to, to people you see now you're working with, how do you, you know, the way I'd phrase it is how do you burn bright without burning out? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I think I, I I did the same stuff every founder does at the beginning, and I, I, I do regret it, right? I'd say knowing that it will, yes, everything is urgent and whatever, but someone someone said to me, even recently, it's like, well, unless you're doing, like, open-heart surgery, it's probably going to be okay if you put in a good day's work and then yes. manage the rest tomorrow. And I wish I did that. I had a really hard time early on yes i was like okay i'm shutting down for the day uh, we had a young daughter uh at the time uh she was actually i started the company around the time she was first born and i made a point no matter what i'm getting on that train back from new york city and i'm putting her to bed but still with all the things going on i, I it was always like i was always frazzled so yeah i'm putting her to bed but i'm like cross-eyed thinking yeah. about all the crap happening about the business. And I, I wish I was able to, easier said than done, set those things aside. I'm a little bit more mature now. And look, I'm I'm a person. All founders are just a people. I do the absolute best I can every day. Put in an honest day's work, you know, a hard, a hard day's work. Work with the team. Um, and tomorrow we'll, we'll do more. And we'll just keep improving every single day. I try not to let the every single little thing carry along with me like I did in the early days. Yes. So good, man. You know, one of the things I've seen is as human beings, we have a hard time distinguishing between discomfort and danger. And we often assume just because something feels uncomfortable, which is I didn't get to that, or I need a decision to be made or whatever. We treat it as danger. And there, that's what we call it urgent or an emergency. And it's like, I heard somebody say once, probably similar to your friend giving you that advice that 99% of emergencies aren't. Yeah. And that was it. <laughs> he was like, if you just realize that 99% of emergencies aren't actually emergencies, you'd probably approach them in a little bit different way. Still with some priority and I'll get to it soon, but it doesn't all have to be done right away. Does that make sense? Yeah. <laughs> I, I wish all founders knew that. I, I feel bad. I see them in that situation. It's hard. Um, and you could say so much, right? But it's sometimes you have to like learn it. Um, but it is, it, it's an issue though. I don't want to see, me, you know, mental health struggles at the, at the cost of just making a little bit extra money. You know, yeah. it's like, there is a balance. I do think there is a balance. You, you got to, when you're starting a company, you got to work hard. You're just, you have to accept, don't do it. Otherwise you're going to be working hard, very hard. Um, but you have to go in knowing that like, it just don't let it consume you. Um, really try not to let it affect you personally. Um, and when I speak to founder, again, that's, we're not in the business of even doing that. You know, we, we do the financials, but when I am speaking to our clients, these are the things that come up. It's the personal financial stuff. It's the burnout stuff. It's the stress, the stress. What like, why'd I even, why'd I do this? Why'd I go down this road? I'd never do this again type of stuff. Yeah. Um, knowing you're in a good privileged spot, but still like, man, every day is, is tough. Um, yeah. In uh, but I do think there's a way you can kind of have it all knowing that first, first knowing that it's gonna, it's, it's not going to be easy <laughs> that know that to begin with. Right. But then I think a lot of it is just, um, again, you just have to learn it. Um, and just try not to let it consume you. Yeah. You know, um, you might like this as well as you're seeing with your clients, but I have a sports background. I don't know if you have a sports background at all, but it helped me help, help me have a framework when I was thinking about like, yeah, but we got to work hard. And it was like, okay, but how you work hard matters, right? Like if the given is we're going to work hard and you'd say like, does a professional football player work hard? Of course they understand I'm going to have to work really hard to make this team. We're going to have to work really hard to accomplish our goals. Yet they are very smart about how they work. They know when there's diminishing returns. Yeah. They know that, Hey, I need recovery as much as I need a workout. And so if I'm going to work hard, when do I stop? What does recovery look like? How do I refresh myself and not get injured? Right. And we get mental injuries. We get emotional injuries. And I think just helping founders think a little bit more like athletes, which is like, yeah, I want to go and put a good day's work in. 
I want to like really show up. I want to really work hard, but I also want to think strategically like an athlete. That's like, Hey man, this is diminishing returns. I don't know why I don't need to be working right now. I could be off recovering, resting. Does that make sense? Yeah. You know, I've been thinking about this a lot actually. And I was actually reflecting we're towards the end of this year. I'm like the past year or two years or whatever, what are the most important things I did? And you know what? There's just like a few. Hmm. It's, it's interesting. It's like, um, as a founder, it's so different than any other job because you don't have a boss telling you what to do. Even if you have a board of directors, uh, which I do and now and many founders do and whatever, still, it's not like they're not operationally involved. You're still the CEO of the company, right? So no one's telling you what to do. They can make suggestions. So there's all sorts of stuff you could spend your time on. I could spend just the, just the amount of solicitations I get in a day. I could make a job off of just seeing what opportunities may arise from that. And, you know, there's a lot of crap you could do as a founder knowing that some of the most important things you do, some of the most important things I did this past year took like, not definitely took some thought. It took actually being out of the weeds a little bit and like, you know what? I want to look at this this way and think about the business this way or promote this person or hire this person to lead this thing or do this deal. There were like incremental various things. There's work that goes into that, but there's a, there are less things than you think that like really end up moving the needle. Yes. And um, part of it is, and I, I'm, I am still even trying to, you know, it's all new things that monopolize my schedule now. And as you, as the business gets bigger and bigger, there's different sorts of things. And I think you just have to always reset and say like, Hey, do I have to be as a founder, especially if you're getting bigger, is this a meeting I need to be in? Or am I just there now? The team's kind of got it covered. And, um, and I try to, you know, stay out of the way actually in a lot of cases, right. And focus on things that I am uniquely suited to support, uh, and know that my role is even changing over time, knowing that it's not the raw amount of just stuff I do or meetings I take. It's like the handful of strategic decisions I make in an entire year. And then aligning everyone on those decisions and where we're going is way more important than like doing this spreadsheet or doing that thing or reading that thing or whatever, right there. So you can't, so, so again, without anyone telling you, this is what you do your, during your day, it is being smart about how you spend your time and only focusing on things that actually move the needle, make revenue go up, make sure employees are happy, make sure the product is good and staying ahead. That's really not much else. Yeah. Yeah, but you're, what you're hitting on is, is very strategic and it's also psychological, right? Because at the beginning, strategically, you probably needed to be doing a lot of the on the ground, you know, sales efforts. You needed to be servicing the account. You needed to be leading that meeting because you had to wear all those multiple hats, right? But then as your company grows and scales, you're actually getting in the way. You know, it's not, the value isn't as much like how hard necessarily did I work? How many meetings did I attend? How many accounts did I close? Like you said, it's actually more like what big decisions did I make? What, yeah. what, what insight did I get about our future? That's going to guide the decisions we're making. What, what important, like, what's the one thing that I did today that was really massive. And that emotionally can be weird for a founder because we're used to being in the small things. And now we're having to say, actually, we're judging ourselves by the big things that are less tangible sometimes. Does that, does that yeah. resonate? Yeah. And, and sometimes it, it, it took events happening for me to even realize that I'm like, all right, I, I can't be, I should really shouldn't be doing that anymore. Maybe about around three years ago, I get like a Slack message like, oh, so-and-so's um, uh, monitor broke. Uh, and uh, do, you know, in, is, they're requesting a new one. It's $80. Do you approve? We're like <laughs> 75 employees. Like not, not that I'm like, Oh, I'm so too big for this, but I'm like, Whoa, if I'm spending my time as a leader thinking about an $80 expense in the scheme of a many million dollar business, I'm doing it. And 
God knows I'm going to take like three days to even see that Slack message and respond to it. Right. I'm doing a disservice. I should probably be spending my time on something more important. Um, and that's better for, for me. It's better for the business and, and the team. Right. So anywhere where I was a bottleneck or like things didn't make sense, I'm like, all right, I, it is now time for me not to be the person doing that thing. What are the main things that feel like a good use of your time right now as the leader of a hundred person company that was different than leading seven people at the beginning? You know, I'm still learning. Uh, so I think now I think really understanding, um, uh, well, what one is where, you know, where we're going and, and just really aligning the company on why we're going, you know, why are we approaching this market in the way we are? Um, and that leads to conversations around, are there new businesses, lines of business or offerings we should have, how we should grow um, our org chart, um, which acquisition should we acquire other companies, which we have um, and will continue to keep doing, what companies are good fits for us to acquire and should those integrate into our company? Should they sit alongside as a complementary company, but not physically be part of it? So it's more acquisitions, overall company, still, still I try to really understand the client need to, you have to stay very close to the client need. Um, and that's really, it's, it's just, it's kind of changed and it's just supporting those teams and making sure we're all aligned is more important now than before. Yeah. Before it was again, like, I, I was basically tech support for the company. It's like, oh my, I got locked out of Gmail. <laughs> Can I, I'm like, all right, I'll, I got admin access. I'll go in and do it. But it's just not a good use of time. So it's, it's really changed. I'm sure it'll change when we're 200 people, even more. Um, yeah. So on. Well, I'm curious about this, you know, a growing, I would say hypothesis. It's not like a fact, but a growing hypothesis in the world of performance, business, leadership, is this idea of for you and for the people that you employ, if there is a self-awareness around what I'm uniquely good at, and that is able to be, you know, mixed with what actually I'm doing. Hey, I got a real strong talent towards this. And now I'm, you know, that's primarily what I'm doing. It's both more enjoyable for me as the person doing it because it aligns with my super strengths. And it's also more profitable for the company because they're getting a fantastic you know, uh, ROI on my time versus doing things I'm not good at. Have you seen that for you and for your people that you're like, actually, if I get to pick between doing this responsibility or this, I'm really talented at this. I'm going to try to shape more of my responsibility over here. Or has that not It's really been a part it's, of your... It's funny. I've, always, I've been a little more selfless in that regard where I'm like, I just where I'm making it worse is probably where like in operations, like where our, our COO is doing a much better job at managing all the day-to-day -day operations than I possibly could have. Just if I were to still be doing that, I was slowing it down. Client onboarding, when I was managing that still, I was slowing it down. So we started building things up where I felt like it was becoming too much of a role for me and or I probably wasn't the best person in the world to do it and someone else should probably do it. Um, that said, I like doing a lot of different things. So it's, it's kind of easy for me to find different. I, I, I enjoy doing sales uh, back when I was doing it. It just was clearly impossible for me to just keep being the only person doing this stuff. So, um, you know, our, our head of sales, the head of um, growth still reports to me, meet with him all the time. And I, so I still am embedded in the process. It's not like the doer of the process. That's still a helpful framework, though, because... If, if it's not necessarily that my, you know, for me, I'm only interested in where a framework helps lead towards positive momentum, you know, where it's like, oh, that, that helped me move forward. If it's not necessarily getting you there by asking, what do I do best or what do I enjoy most? For you, it is where am I making things worse or where am I in the way? Yeah, pr pr pretty much. I, 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 maybe I don't think about myself enough in that regard. But again, it's never been, um, you know, there's never really been a situation where I'm like, I just don't like this part of the bit. It's more just like, uh, eh, not the best at that thing. Maybe it shouldn't be me. Um, I, I still stay pretty close to our own internal financial. I, I'm, that is one thing I'm, I should be uniquely good at is understanding financials for a company like ours. So I still stay pretty close to that though. I'm not mentioning the day to day of our internal financials. Uh, but I stay close to that process and really, uh, less so the doing more of the understanding what does it all mean? What is it telling me about the market, our team's performance, our client happiness, um, the overall just 
our overall industry uh, and, and where we're going. It's, it's so try to keep an ear to that stuff and eye on that stuff very closely, but it, less of a doing capacity, more of trying to think about what it means about the business. Yeah. What's the most challenging thing about leading a company, a company your size? I think a lot of it is what we just said. It's, it's where I, um, where I make sure I'm adding the most value and supporting the team. Um, when to jump in and, and be hands-on and support things. Um, and, 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 and that's gotten easier over time. It's just being candid with the team. Like, Hey, I'm here for you during it. You could just, just, you could just throw something on my calendar. If something came up, some kind of client thing or even an employee thing or whatever it is. I'm 100% here, but don't ever feel obligated. You, you, you guys know what you're doing. I trust everyone that works here to do, you know, their roles and what they do. I'm, I'm here to support. Um, so I think it was figuring out where I kind of fit in, in the day-to-day operational stuff, um, and how to support the team and not just to feel like keeping busy. It's like where, where I feel like I'm supporting the team, um, and making sure they, they feel that I kind of, I'm, I'm there with them as well. Yeah. Well, it sounds like that the, uh, the question I asked you might be the right question for you to ponder on right now, because that's what we're talking about, right? Which is I could be in a variety of use to my team. And I think you have that, that humble, uh, what matters most is what needs to be done, which is critical, especially in the early stages to not be picky, to not be a prima donna to say like, I'll get in, I'll, 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 I'll take on any challenge. But now you're like, well, is it worth me being there? Is that the best use of my time? And so it's at least worth asking yourself like, well, what framework helps me, helps me make that decision. Right. Um, and I would say it's knowing your superpower. Like, Hey, if I was to give an hour of myself to this team or this person, what's the best use of that hour? Something that I uniquely either have experience in or leverage in or insight in that like they know if they need this superpower, Paul's here for them, you know? Yeah, it's a great point. What one thing we are doing now that I'm having a lot of fun with that I did specifically insert myself into there is uh, looking at the client journey from start to finish. You know, we've grown a lot. We've acquired another company and integrated it. Just saying like, hey, we got, we're a lot bigger now. Let's just, let's just write this all out and talk it all through and put ourselves in the almost like an undercover boss, but you know, type of situation, but not undercover. Just like, let's just walk through the whole client journey and shadow and learn to see what a client experiences from the minute they hear about graphite to the time they speak to sales. Is this a fit through the quote, through the handoff from sales to our onboarding team, through the onboarding process to our post onboarding team, the day to day, the team that's going to manage the account from there on out and even offboarding. And that involves what the handoffs look like, the way we're talking about things, making sure that we're, what we're saying during the sales process is exactly what we're delivering, exactly the same or as similar as we can. Um, every person is a service, so every person's a little different, but as similar as we can across the whole organization, what the output looks like, right? That's actually one interesting thing is the output we have as a company ourselves, we are a finance firm. Um, and I personally spent a lot of time on our own monthly financials and understand what that output looks like. Our clients get that, the exact same thing we get. And I, you know, I built that. And I was kind of happy about how I built that. And I'm like, hey, this is pretty damn good. I like what we're looking at here. Our clients should get the exact same thing. Um, and so we just, you know, we've been rolling that out as well. So being part of the client experience, the whole journey has been fun for me. Uh, as part of this process and Lear- learning a lot, trying to input where uh, I can and, but working with a, a team to do, it's not just me. We have a small team doing this process. It's been a lot of fun. Yeah, man. I mean, it sounds like architecting is, is maybe a word that's part of your, your kind of super talent, your ability yeah, to just... conceptualize, see things from start to finish and architect an ideal client experience is one use of that. But architecting in general sounds like one of your superpowers. Yeah, I think for me, it's always been, um, you know, I've, I don't know if I've ever been the, the the smartest person in the room or whatever, or, you know, or may, maybe the hardest working, but I am very thoughtful about things. I think, uh, I remember I had like a, my 10th grade teacher, history teacher, he was talking, telling a story about a friend of his that was this like, he called him a polymath. 
And he's like, you know, and, and he's like, he is, does this in finance. He builds houses like from scratch, like and designs them. And it's he read a book about it, then he did it, and he knows all these languages and um has all this success. And he's like, I asked him, what's the number one thing? This is from 10th grade. I remember this. I haven't thought about this since then. And he's like, uh, he asked my, he's like, I asked my friend this, and my friend's answer was attention to detail. Hmm. Um, it sounded weird at the time, but I get it now. Because you could do a thing and get like pretty good at it, but really it is, and I think with any company, really understanding the customer, uh, really what you're providing the customer, understanding your market, like just a little deeper than anyone else in the world, and you're gonna make, you're gonna do very well, and you're gonna have a good business. That's a that's a great great piece of advice uh, to end on. Seriously, like that that distinction between good and great is is just what you said. Often that little bit of attention to detail makes it a little easier to work with you, or you know, less friction in the sales process, or less friction in getting the 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 ideal result uh, could be a huge advantage between you and your competitors. That is so good, Paul. My last question. Yeah. Is just what what are you excited about? What are you most excited about for the future of Graphite right now? For me, it's just seeing what we could do. Um, it's like we have product market fit. We have a great team to execute on it. And you know, every year we do this annual offsite, and every year there's just so many more people there. We just did it. It was in Orlando. We did Orlando two years in a row, um, and just so many more people. And I'm just in awe every time. And I'm just like what's it going to be like next year and all the new people I'm going to get to sort of meet and hang out with and, you know, just learn about them and, you know, understand just, just what could this become? Yeah. And like, could this become my, my, I never do anything with an end point in mind. Right. I think like I always, our philosophy with the team, we, there's a couple things we care about and let's just execute on that heads down and who knows what's going to happen. You know, so long as we stay true to ourselves over that period of time, yeah, I th really think there's a lot of possibility. Uh, if we let it get away from ourselves, any company that has product market fit and a good name will only die a death of their own doing, right? From self-inflicted wounds. Right. Um, and like, let's guys, let's just slow and steady, do our thing and not do that. And we're going to have an, an amazing company one day. And I, I don't even know what it will look like. I've never done this before. So I, for, to me, it's that kind of awe and wonder as to what that may look like down the road. But again, no pre no preconceived notion of, oh, I, we must go public or we must be a thousand person company. Those, those are just numbers, right? It's like, what, what could it, what will it end up being if we just have our, you know, keep our heads down and focus on, on what we believe in. Love that. Love that. All right. If someone's listening and they need your services, they're like, man, I know I'm good at my company, but I don't have a clue how to do the finance part. Where do I send them? Yeah, so go to graphitefinancial.com. Um, if you want some specific, uh, you, you, I even put a link. You can talk to me, graphitefinancial.com slash podcast. Um, we'll be a little bit more specific, some founder resources. Uh, you could chat with us. And if we could help you, uh, happy to have a conversation. We are the least salesy company in the world. We just listen, see if we could help. If we can't, we can. If we can, we'll try to be fair. Awesome. Paul, thank you so much for your time, man. This has been a true pleasure and I've learned a lot. Thank you. Appreciate it. Founders, thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed it. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast and hop into our monthly founder email so we can ensure you stay on the edge of peak performance and massive business results.